Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. And I'm Matt Henry, and we're going to do another little episode on spiritual motivators, this one on consistency. Uh, Now, today we want to talk a bit about how consistency helps us remain motivated in our spiritual growth in life. Um, Now, various teachers uh, use all sorts of motivations to get their people to do things, guilt being one of the main tools, but we argue that seldom will that ever produce the desired outcome, but it does produce a lot of damaged individuals. And have you ever, yeah, just that guilt and, and yeah. So an exceedingly humble and godly man that I knew was a man named Dr. Jim Roscup um, out of the Master Seminary. He's with the Lord now, but I had the privilege of sitting under his teaching and professor, how do you say it, professorial, professorial, his care as a professor. <laughs> Boy, I, I struggle with the, word, the letter R, so I have to be careful with word choices. He was a man, though. He was rigorous in his studies and gracious in his care for his students. Um, and this material is uh, adapted off of what he taught on the subject. Uh, but really, his example as a man of God became an actual motivation for me. Uh, so the first episode we did on this little subset of, of episodes is on uh, the idea of salvation. We, we said that as we contemplate and grasp our salvation, it motivates us in various ways. And so we would, first of all, encourage you to go listen to the first one if you've not done so. They're very short, and we think it'll be helpful. So today we're going to deal with another motivator. As I said, it's consistency. But this is not talking about habit which is what a lot of people think about when they're being consistent. But rather, it is the idea, as the Merriam-Webster Dictionary puts it, which means the ability to be asserted together without contradiction. Uh, What's that mean? When we think about our lives before a watching world and a watching Lord, the question we ought to consider is how consistent are we to our calling? So the Apostle Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 4.1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. All he's really saying there is that our life should faithfully reflect what we are claiming to be true. So today, we're going to give a bit of our time to that task. In other words, don't be a hypocrite. Right. Well, and it's interesting that he starts that in chapter four, having spent three chapters on the greatness of our salvation, which is why we say, go listen. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. So, so here, yeah, consistency is a motivator. So when we look at Jesus Christ, of course, that is where we have our example. So the better that, that we know Christ, the better we have information on how to live in this age. So a great passage is Philippians two, five through eight. That, that famous passage where Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. 
and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, namely death on a cross. Now, Paul could have just said, be humble right yep. there, right? I mean, would have been that simple. Um, as, as an apostle, that, that should be enough. But truthfully, in all honesty, that isn't enough for many of us. Um, we like to exert our freedom. We like to have our independence. And so we choose to take a command like that into consideration. Yes, we'll, we'll being, think about we're, it. We're, yes. we're being honest. <laughs> um, but if you're a true Christian, then, then you, you love your Savior. And if you contemplate his humility, then you realize that what Paul is telling you is not a big deal at all. Um, so, so you are not God. <laughs> uh, you're, you're not perfect and eternal. You're not omnipotent. And so why is it so hard for us to express humility? Um, so we would say, look to your Lord who set the exercise of all these things and more to serve us by becoming sin on our behalf. Um, and then just let that sink in. And that should motivate you to then go back and act in a similar manner. Uh, Romans 15, three is another good one for even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell upon me. If you're honest, often your decisions are based on what pleases you. No. Uh, <laughs> well, maybe not you, <laughs> but, um, you know, our decisions are based on what most benefits us. Uh, even when we, uh, serve, it is only to a certain point, but not beyond it's, I've been asked enough or I've been, yep. enough's been required of me. I'm done here. Uh, but looking at Jesus, we see that he did not live to please himself. Uh, he did not enjoy becoming sin on our behalf. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it was not pleasurable for our approach to become his, but he owned it and he did it. We would say also, in fact, many marriages would be transformed if the husband could grasp that in the loving of his wife as Christ loves the church. Um, and that includes taking his wife's weakness and sin and making them his own. You know, he, he, he's, so he's not in competition with his wife. Rather, he's one, one flesh with her. Her weakness, therefore, are now his weaknesses. Um, and he is now to bear them up and help her leave them. Yeah, think about a lot of marriages as a competition. And he's like, well, I'm, I'm a lot better than she is. He's like, whoopee-doo. I mean, that's not a real theological statement, but <laughs> I mean, your job as a husband is to model Christ to your wife, and, and that includes the bearing of her weaknesses and helping transform her. Because they're your weaknesses. Yeah, the, and, and because we're going to be like Christ in that way. I mean, so many marriages would radically change if the guy would just get off the couch, put down the TV remote, and start owning his call as a husband. So when we follow another thing we'd say is when we follow a mature believer, we are actually going to be following Christ. And when we call, which means we have to first realize what a real mature believer is. Right. And when we call someone to follow us, it should be consistent with the person and the character of Jesus. So Paul says, with no blushing in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. In other words, Paul made his life, this life of his, consistent, and that, that was his method of living. That is why he could tell us to follow and imitate him. Not because he had a good way to, but because he was following and imitating Christ. Now think about that yourself, and it can be rather humiliating and even enlightening. Can you look at somebody right now in the eye and say, hey, imitate me 
because I imitate Jesus. When you, when you say that, things all of a sudden get a little vague, right? Yeah. You're like, well, I mean, I'm trying on this and that. And we, we come up with all kinds of excuses. Paul gives no excuse. He, he is so confident you can follow in his, his footsteps because he knows what he's doing. Um, one thing we try to focus on at our churches here is developing mature believers. But again, that is rather vague. And it's common to find Christians who would describe themselves as rather mature. But we would look at them and say, we're not impressed at all. So what they really mean is that they have been a Christian for quite some time. Um, they're actually comfortable in their faith. They, they have their life pretty much together, and there are no major theological or moral problems. I mean, their house is happy, their job's going pretty good, their health is good, and, and they love Jesus. So it's all good. But that's not what we would see as mature, nor do we think the Bible would see. A mature believer is one who is actively in the process of maturing another believer. In other words, this person is discipling a person, either at the front end by sharing the gospel or somewhere in the middle, teaching them to walk faithfully in Christ. And so when we ask a person into whom they are pouring their faith, perspectives often change. So we'll ask you, who are you discipling? Who is it that you're gathering with on a regular basis for the purpose of modeling for them what it looks like to follow Christ? Now, if you begin to meet with another person with the goal of to build them up in the faith, not just theology, I think a lot of people confuse discipleship by going through the Westminster Confession. It's like that's not discipleship per se, unless it's then what then does this look like? Um, but you will find that you will grow yourself as you try to build others up in the faith because weaknesses will be revealed in you. And that's good. You will find that it's hard to say, follow me if you're not following Christ. And so the end result of that kind of relationship is that you both benefit. I, I can say without, without exception, every time I meet with people and I meet with people throughout the week, it, it pushes me, yeah. right? I mean, you do premarital counseling and it affects your marriage, right? Because you're being reminded once again what God expects of you as a husband. And, and so it's just that simple idea of stop waiting and start getting together with another person who's younger in faith and weaker in the faith and begin to disciple them. Pour your faith into them. Produce a maturing believer. Yeah, and it doesn't matter where you're at. Right. There, there's always somebody less mature than you in the church. Yep, and yet the vast majority of church members have no one that they can point to. Yeah, yep. So also we need to consider what in our life is inconsistent with our calling and then deal with those things. So we already referenced that Ephesians 4, 1 passage about walking in a manner worthy of your calling. But if we were to leave it right there, um, it's fairly easy to tell ourselves that we're doing good. Yeah, uh, We can look at others who are doing worse off and pat ourselves on the backs, even though you know, we would not like to admit we're doing so. Uh, but that is not all there is on this subject. So just listen to how specifically Paul then takes his whole idea of walking worthy. So. In chapter five, verses three through six, he writes, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this, you know, with certainty 
that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So if we use the, the question of being consistent with our claim of faith in Christ to motivate us, then this passage becomes helpful. Uh, verse three all by itself pretty much sums it up or sums up American ideals, I should say. So how many times do we listen to people explain away these three sins here that are mentioned? Uh, how often do we chuckle among ourselves about them or make jokes about them? So, so greed, uh, that's a nasty little thing that chokes out our eternal treasure and proves to show our idolatry. Uh, impurity causes us to stain and sully all of our efforts and goals. And then that one of immorality is, I mean, that, uh, that one's a wrecking ball in our lives and those around us. Um, so the question is this, are these sins part of your life? Um, a life that is consistent with these activities is a life that is actually outside of Christ here, as Paul says um, in verses five through six. So Paul exhorts these professing believers to make their lives consistent with the term saints. And he uses that very intentionally. Mm -hmm. It's the, the Greek word hagios, which means to be holy, to be consecrated or set apart specifically for the master's use. Um, I would just throw in there, by the way, that when those things are markers of your life, you should not scratch your head as to why you're not producing fruit. Right. He's just not going to use you. Right. So unless you root out those kinds of sins, he's not going to use you. Right. So the fact that you have a, maybe a fruitless life or you're bearing less fruit than you desire to may be an indication that these in some capacity are still true for you. And I might add off of that true fruit, because you look at a guy like Chavidjan, who was having multiple adulterous affairs, and he was even cheating on the ones he's cheating with. And and yet his church was growing in that sense, you know, and he was selling books. So you could lie to yourself and say, see the fruit. But it's like that church was not growing in the grace and knowledge of Lord Jesus Christ because you were, in fact, walking as an unbeliever and speaking and living uh, as an unbeliever. That, that That's not true fruit, but that's for another podcast. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, and then just by the way, here in uh, verse eight, uh, he just adds that we're to walk as children of the light if we claim to walk in the life. Uh, and so that's, that's very similar to how John writes in his epistles. Right. So, so a final question we can ask is how are we adorning the gospel in our life and actions? So here's another one, Titus 2, 9 through 10. Urge bond slaves or slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. To be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Why? So that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Now, the specific point, obviously, to the Christian is to the Christian slave of that time. Now, we know that what Paul really means in that passage is that the slave should become completely defined as a chattel slave. He should be filled with bitterness and angst, and he should talk endlessly about freedom and reparations. Or not. <laughs> I mean, just think about our current conversation in the church. Yeah, that, I'm true. sorry, I'm ranting. No, but, that's true. But, yeah. Oh, you don't know what my great-grandfather, my grandfather, he's like, it doesn't matter. That's not what Paul is talking about here. And yes, the slavery of that day was chattel slavery, just yeah. like in America. And he says, you'd be a good slave. That's what you'd be. Um, Paul simply commands the slave to be obedient, 
not only in word and deed, but actually in heart. Why? Because their actions and attitudes reflect how they honor their true master, Jesus their Savior. And though the vast majority of those listening are not slaves in this age, we are all slaves to Christ. And what we ought to do is ask ourselves, how are we adorning the doctrine of God our Savior in what we want to do? Just think about how many decisions you made in the last year that might have looked very differently, or at least had been a lot more easier to make if you had asked that question. Just to make sure we're clear on this, listen to two other passages that make the same point. In 1 Timothy 6.1, Paul writes, All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Why? So that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. He doesn't really give a flying rest tell whether or not you're being treated well. He says you live in such a way that no one can speak against. Yeah. How, how will you live in light of the mistreatment? Wow. Crazy. 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 9, 12, if others share the right to be supported, and what he means by the right is to be supported financially as a teacher. So he says, if others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things. Why? So that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel. So again, all Paul really cares about is does my choice and my actions and reactions reflect properly God and his gospel? That's simple. So there you go. Another way to help you consider what ought to motivate you in your pursuit of Jesus Christ. But what stands out to us in this is the tendency in so many churches today to be broad and gospely in their teaching. What we mean by that is that the congregation is seldom confronted with the actual message of any given text, or it is taught but then there's a strong disconnect between the pulpit and what is the expectation to embrace what is heard and then put into action. Often the reason given is that we don't want to create legalists or lose sight of the fact that though we cannot do it, and by it we mean anything the Bible commands us to do, that it's okay because Jesus did it for us. You hear that all the time in the preaching. That sort of teaching actually creates spiritual misfits and false converts. Passages like we read today are there to actually help move our souls toward obedience and faithfulness. For those who are regenerate, this rings deep and true. For those whose hearts are shallow or thorny, using the, a riff off of the soils, these things will become burdensome at some point. So we, we, we ask, let these things move you. Learn to ask consistently yourself the questions we posed in this, this podcast. We think that if you do, it will be of great help to your walk as a believer. Well, again, we hope that you were helped with the episode. Uh, we would ask that you share it with others if you don't mind. We have plenty of other episodes in the making, but until then, make sure to tune in, join the conversation. And if you have any questions on this subject of spiritual motivation, drop us a note. But don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, review on iTunes, connect with, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and tell a friend.